Welcome to Lobster Brain. Lobsters fight, and when they win, it changes the neurochemicals in their brain, and in turn the hierarchy of the lobster community. Each success makes the lobster more of a leader, and it becomes a top lobster. But why are we telling you this? Because in this podcast, you'll learn about how success can influence your mindset, strengthen your beliefs, and change your thought processes. But you'll also discover that it's both success and hard knocks that create leaders, or as we'll be calling them, top lobsters. I'm Lisa Morton. And I'm Danny Donerkey. And in this episode of Lobster Brain, you're going to hear from top lobster, Dr. Lisa Miller. Lisa is a Columbia professor, a clinical psychologist, and a New York Times bestselling author. She's an expert in how to wake up your brain. So what do we mean by that? Lisa's book, The Awakened Brain, is a groundbreaking look at the neuroscience of spirituality. I was really keen, Lisa, to get Dr. Miller on here. Uh, I heard her on the Rich Roll podcast and, you know, she manages to merge science with spirituality. And I think it's something that's really missing in in our society right now. Uh, But I I wanted to speak to you about uh, the reaction you had when you listened to this podcast again. What, What happened with you? When I first listened back to the podcast, some of the conversations and how I'd engaged with Dr. Miller made me feel really vulnerable. Yeah, and I think that our listeners are really going to enjoy listening to that, Lisa, because I think it will help them connect with that vulnerability within themselves. And it's good to be vulnerable because it gets us in touch with feelings and parts of ourselves that might we might not be aware of otherwise. And as Dr. Miller speaks about, it helps us connect with other people because we all have these feelings and vulnerabilities that we often can't get in touch with. Yeah, I agree. I think also a reaction I had was that a lot of the people I know may find this too far down the spiritual route to how perhaps I know them. And and I'm making assumptions about those people in actual fact, because maybe that's because a lot of people we work with don't necessarily want to show that side of themselves and that vulnerability. So I'm hoping with this podcast that a lot of people can really relate to that. And maybe, as you say, you know, it'll help them to be more open and to have that their own conversation with life, as she says. Yeah, I, I think yeah, that you make a great point. And, you know, since since I listened to the podcast, I've actually been speaking to people a lot more openly about my own spiritual life and, and what it actually means. And I think Dr. Miller's got a great way of, of bringing the science into the reality, you know, and she's worked with she's worked with the U.S. Army. She went in and met the general of the U.S. Army and he um, he put her work into 25,000 of his top troops immediately. And, you know, her, re- her research has proven that um, to have a, a, a strong spiritual core and that's individual to everyone, it means that you are 80% less likely to be depressed. So her work is actually more powerful than any pill and any therapy. So I think, you know, anybody listening to this who might have their doubts about what spirituality is, it's actually a really practical thing. And, you know, as you experienced, as I experienced, it it really opens your heart and, and makes you feel more connected to life. And there are a couple of meditation exercises in the, the podcast, which I know it may feel uncomfortable because it did slightly for me when Dr. Miller asked us to do them and I was sitting in a room and Danny was in the room next to me. We were both having a meditation exercise, but I really would urge listeners to take the time if you're on a walk 
or if you've got, um, don't do it while you're in the car, obviously, but um, really take the time to, um, to use those exercises because they're really beneficial. Dr. Miller, first of all, I wanted to ask you, what's an awakened brain? So Lisa and Danny, I'm so excited to share this science and its implications for our lives, how we can strengthen and better our lives and be better to one another. The awakened brain is a gift with which every single one of us on earth is endowed. It's our birthright. It's in our genes. And it's the deep place inside ourselves through which we can feel connected to who we might call the higher power, the force of life. I, I, my own word is God. Some people say Allah, Hashem, Jesus. It, no matter what our word is, there's a force in and through all life that is creative, that is loving, holding, and guiding. And we are built to be able to be in relationship. It is our birthright. We know this through science, that we are an open system. We can connect with this deep spirit that builds life. And when we do use our awakened brain, when we wake up to the loving presence of this transcendent relationship, who I call God, our lives unfold in an entirely different way. It, it's simply a scientific fact over hundreds of articles. So what benefits do you think that an awakened brain can bring people and what impact would it have on their lives? So Lisa, you know, in school, all of us very honestly come to build the muscle of our achieving brain, which is how we you know, line up A plus B plus C to go get that big red door. And we do need tactics and we need strategy. And it's helpful in life to have traction to implement and go get. But achieving awareness alone is completely inadequate to handle life's challenges, to handle the past three years of the global pandemic, dual pandemic, the virus and the mental health consequences. Life is about 10% controllable and then 90% full of dynamism and flux and surprises. And when we realize that achieving awareness alone is not going to do it, we start in those moments to open up another part of ourselves, our awakened awareness. And awakened awareness allows us to stop asking that constant achieving question, what do I want? How am I going to get it? Oh, no, I'm not going to get it. How am I going to get it now? And shift the conversation with life from what do I want and how am I going to get it to what is life showing me now? And even more deeply, what is the spirit in and through life, this loving, guiding presence in and through life showing me now? And whether it's through meditation that we dial in, or for some people, they'll say nature is my cathedral. And in nature, I suddenly have clarity and spontaneous awareness. Their dialogue, the spirit is in and through nature. Or for some people, prayer. I ask God with my whole heart, and in my mind's eye, or in the day ahead, unfolds an answer. So when we shift from treating life like we're ordering on Amazon to saying, wow, I'm not a maker of my path hardcore sealed up. I'm much more of a discoverer on a journey. And it's a journey with surprises, and some are very unwanted, but yield to a life that is still big and good and strong. And some are delightfully just breathtaking like the birth of a child. But we become really much more like hikers on a long trail. And we show up for each other as trail angels, but we don't know where we're going, really. We're more we're explorers. We're on a quest. Dr. Miller, that sounds amazing. And I work with a lot of people, whether they're high-performing athletes or business people, and they 
work with the part of the brain that you mentioned in terms of like driving and succeeding and and achieving things in life and they they get to a point and they realize that that doesn't give them what they were seeking what they were looking for and i've heard you speak before about how mindfulness gets you so far but an awakened brain gets you further so what advice would you give these people uh, you know the athletes or the high performing business people danny you are so right that mindfulness is a lovely practice to quiet and focus the mind. It gets us present. It's an attentional, effective practice. And it brings us up to the threshold so that we might then cross over into spiritual awareness, awaken our natural spirituality. And in awakened awareness, there are three deep realizations. The first is that we are loved and held. We can feel completely frightened. We can feel that horrible existential nagging. We can be very physically cut off, lonely in my COVID apartment, or feeling estranged or heartbroken. My lover left me. But still in that moment of utter alienation, we are loved and held. And when we realize that piece of awakened awareness in our brain, the bonding network that went off when we were babies in our parents' arms, our grandparents' arms, lets us know that life itself, God, higher power, spirit holds us. The second thing we realize is that we are never alone. The parietal that puts in and out hard boundaries, it says, you know, you have your bio body suit and I have mine and you live at this GPS coordinate and I live over here. Well, we're also white caps on one ocean. We are a point and we are a wave. So in a sense, we are never alone because we're always part of the family of life, the field of consciousness. We are loved and held. We are never alone. And finally, we are guided. We go from the very narrow bowling alley view. It's the dorsal attention network. I've got to have it. It's got to be that red door. It has got to be that red door to wow. Suddenly there's a bigger field of life. Life has more pixels and a whole new horizon. I didn't even know it was there. Seems to pop. Loved, held, guided, and never alone. So this is our neuro seat of awakened awareness. We all have it. But the more we practice it, we build it like a muscle. The United States Army and I have worked together for three years building whole soldier fitness. And whole soldier fitness for the Army is body, mind, heart, and spirit. Spiritual fitness. And as they have physical fitness for the physical core, every soldier, every athlete, every human being needs spiritual fitness. You might say practice is your word. Spiritual fitness for the spiritual core. When we strengthen our awakened awareness, it becomes the go-to place. And pretty soon, we start to look at life in a different way. So I could have the same job. I could be in the same game on the same field with the same teammates, same crowd, and it all looks different through my awakened brain. I move in tandem with life. I don't get angry at people as easily. There's more love in my heart. Ah, oh, that's my competitor. You know, that's that's what he's there for. He's there to compete against me. You know, I have more love as my brother is competing against me, not my enemy is competing against me. There's a sense that the crowd, you know, there if they weren't there, we wouldn't be here. So we're actually one sea of life, not them and us. So there, there's a different felt sense of who we are to one another when we use our awakened awareness. And it's there for all of us. This is not just the most pious or the most you know, devoted monks. We are all naturally spiritual beings. We can all awaken our awareness. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey? Because I know that you had to overcome science's 
doubting of our spiritual nature and you probably still have to do that. So can you tell us a bit about how you got there? I'd love to. Thank you, Danny. And I'll share that the journey, I think, is one that speaks to our shared post-industrial culture, which is in the most of the 20th century, we had two camps of folks. And one camp would say, you know, I am very scientific. I only take to be true that which science shows spirituality. That's very, very woo-woo, right? And the other, they'd say, spirituality, that's woo-woo. I don't, that's not real. I only believe what science can prove. The other group said, I'm a profoundly spiritual person. I don't care that science can't prove it. There's nothing I need from the outside. I know in my heart, spiritual to be true. Well, it turns out that now science and spirituality can go hand in hand. We can take the lens of science and point it on a broad host of questions, including the impact of spirituality on the lived human life. Science as a lens is a method. And over 25 years of being a clinical scientist, you know, our team has published in JAMA and American Journal of Psychiatry is a host of peer-reviewed journals. The peer review process has always, as a pure scientific process, been fair and right, and we've published in, in top journals through peer review. Peer review requires two or three scientists to review every article for its internal scientific merits two or three times. That is science, and science over 20 years has brought forward now a robust body of published work on spirituality in the human life course, the biological correlates of spiritual life, the brain, the genes, the way life looks different. We're less depressed, less likely to take our lives when we have a strong spiritual life that's shared. So science has produced something extraordinary. Science is a form of witness, and it has shown that we are innately spiritual beings when we realize our nature, we're healthier, we're more ethical, we're more connected. That's the science story. But as you say, Danny, while the whole science story was unfolding for 20 years, in, you know, in the bleachers was not science, but the culture, the appetites, the vogue, the, you might call the contemporary scientism, which had nothing to do with the method. The method was clean and crisp and worked. The culture, the scientism around it was actually one that said, it's only real if you can touch it and see it. It's only real scientism if it can be reduced to something tangible. It was radical materialism. It was the view that the only things in life that are real you can knock on or hear. Well, that view is no longer the view in our arid water. When I speak to people in their 20s, when I talk to my students at Columbia University, there's a sense that that which cannot be seen is equally real. You know, there's a generation that grew up pulling information out of the air, not through telephone lines. And the young adults know that there are forces in and through life. There's a presence, a consciousness field in and through life that's information, but not only information. It has a thrust. It has a direction. Spirituality is right there. It just needs to be given its name, its honor. It needs to be allowed into the center of, you know, whether it's the field for a football game or a boardroom or six friends at a party, it needs to be totally okay to be all of ourselves. And then we'll be so much more and we'll bond so much more deeply. This is the reality. Science has your back. 
proof is in the pudding. That makes me think about our listeners who are new to your work, Dr. Miller. Where where do you think they should start in terms of becoming all of themselves? That's beautiful. Could we perhaps share a practice? That would Please. be lovely. Okay. This is a practice. I always thank my teacher, just like when you have a great coach. You say it was me and coach. Well, this teacher was Dr. Gary Weaver. He's passed, but I honor him when I share this. I'm going to invite you to take five breaths and clear out your inner space, your inner chamber. If you wish, close your eyes, open up your inner chamber. In your inner chamber, I invite you to set before you a table. This is your table. And to your table, you can invite anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interests in mind. Anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that's so much more than what you have or don't have, what you've done or not done, your true eternal higher self. And ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power, whatever word is yours, however you know your higher power. And ask your higher power if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting there right now, what do they want you to know? What do they need to share with you right now? What do they need to tell you now? When you're ready, I'll invite you back. This is your counsel. And they are always there for you. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved, held, guided, and never alone. And you are born with this gift to be able to connect to the sacred transcendent relationships that surround you. In you, through you, and around you. Now, when we have choices to make in our lives, we can ask what's on our heart to counsel. And who shows up may change depending on where we are in our road. This is our deepest seat of being, and it's all of ours. That's so beautiful. I think that's incredibly helpful for so many people now because even though we're more connected than ever in terms of technology and if you think through COVID, you know, Zoom calls, it's the whole technology seems to be overpowering at times, the fact that the necessity to be connected. But yet so many people do feel not held and they do feel lonely and they do feel isolated even though we're all connected again in person. Do you think that that is something that's just a current scenario of modern life, the fact that we've lost that 
ability to connect with those powers in ourselves that you just described. It's so beautifully put, Lisa. The way I sometimes think about this is how might I walk today that I should show up at someone's table, not out of ego and not because I'm so special, but out of a deep love that I walked with them today. And that can be from my child to my parent to the homeless guy on the bus to the junior person at work who just messed up the deal. You know, how do I walk so that at the end of the day I show up at their table or would be worthy of such? And, and that's relational spirituality. Both, you know, it's so beautiful. The same part of our brain that allows us to be in deep relationship to who I call God, the higher power, spirit, force, and life. Some people say Jesus, Hashem, the part of us that is hardwired in our brain through which we feel a transcendent, lived, deep, dynamic relationship. Well, that is the same part of the brain that allows us to feel the presence of the sacred of God in our love for one another. The same brain that helps me feel God's presence helps me feel God's presence in you and in our sisterhood or brotherhood. So we are built to be in a relational spiritual stance towards one another. And it's possible we could use our phones to do that. We don't need to use them to talk about how separate and different and better we are, you know. I have more of this and don't have to deal with any of that and look how fabulous, you know. That's, that's life of separateness. And it's actually, because it's been in our culture so long, radical separateness, only the point, not the wave, that we now have a lonely, lonely, lonely culture of a bunch of atoms bouncing around who don't know that they're part of one field of life. But we can, literally this moment, like this moment, renew our felt sense of love, feeling through the heart. Well, you mentioned then this beautiful kind of metaphor of, of walking with people. When I've spoken to some of my friends who felt incredibly lonely, particularly through COVID and possibly haven't even got over that experience yet. Some of them have said that the thing that helped them to feel less lonely was showing up for other people. So the act of giving made them feel less lonely in doing that. So if we can tap into that and then share that, we're going to make some major ripples, aren't we, in terms of feeling held Absolutely. It's so beautifully put that just as we're loved, held, and guided, and never alone, we can show up for one another so as to be loving and holding, guiding, and never leave anyone alone. We awaken our natural spirituality when we're loving to one another. And in fact, we, you know, if I might share a bit of science, we looked all around the world. We looked in India, we looked in China, we looked in the US. We said, well, okay, we know that the natural spiritual brain is inborn. It is in our genes. Every baby is born with a spiritual brain. That means that while there's a beautiful range of faith traditions, and some people are Hindu and Muslim and Christian and Jewish and spiritual but not religious, there's still one spiritual brain, and we all have it. So there must be some common spiritual experiences. And indeed, these common expressions of our genetic spirituality are the phenotypes of our spirituality, and there's five. One is all around the world, there's an on-ramp to spiritual awareness, prayer, meditation, spiritual mind-body. Every culture all around the world has an on-ramp. Once we're there, in a state of awakened awareness, we feel that love, love is in us, through us, and around us. Love is not just an emotion like, hey, I had a great day of happiness. Love is a powerful, sacred, transformative force. 
Love changes our lives for the people in the room and the people outside the room. It shifts the world. Everyone gets it, India, China, U.S. We are all one, interconnectedness. Everyone knows that. We're a point and we're a wave. We're magnificently diverse and part of one human family. So on-ramp, love and unit of awareness, off-ramp. We have a moral code that we just don't pick out of convenience or today I'd like to break this rule so it's no part of, no longer part of my moral code. You know, a moral code that comes from our relationship to God, spirit, ultimate reality. Okay, those four phenotypes are phenotypes all around the world of spiritual awareness. The fifth universal phenotype, the expression of natural human spirituality, is altruism, love of neighbor. And of all of the natural expressions of human spirituality, those five phenotypes, the one that most strengthens our awakened awareness, the one that most builds the spiritual brain, is altruism, love of neighbor. Showing up for the friend who's isolated and alone, helping out the homeless fellow, doing the thing that's completely inconvenient, but tap, tap, you know this one's yours. Altruism awakens and strengthens our spiritual brain. More than any other, everything counts, but altruism is the most powerful. I think of it as prayer and action. That's how I've always viewed lived spiritual values. And they make us spiritual values, lived awakened awareness, less addicted. People with a strong spiritual life are 80% less likely to slide down. You know, every human being is, is susceptible, slide down the really perilous road of addiction, much less likely to be depressed to the point where we take our lives. When spiritual life is shared, like you and your friend in a group, a sangha, a minion, a fellowship, a a study group, we are 82% less likely to take our lives. The epidemic in the United States right now is not COVID. It's mental health. And the Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murthy, put out his once-in-an-administration warning on the elevated rates of the diseases of despair, riddling all decades of life, but particularly young adults. The isolation, the felt pain, the existential emptiness is by far most fierce right now in young adults. And how can we be there for one another? Naturally coming together in love and service and reawakening relational spirituality. It's an important point that you make, and it's definitely not just in the United States. You know, we're in the UK and other countries that we visit. It's the same epidemic that's happening, unfortunately. Uh, You know, the children that I see and work with, especially in professional football, they, they don't have the same kind of resilience that they had five years ago, 10 years ago. And there's, there's a, a sensitivity in terms of their mental uh, strength and, and courage, I guess. So in terms of like a, a community that exists or an organization like a football club, how could you share this advice with, say, for example, football players or team leaders or anybody that is part of a group of any form, even members of our own family? You know, Danny, you're so right. And I do want to clarify that this is post-industrial global culture that we're looking at. Um, and certainly, you know, every young adult on earth is connected into one youth culture through the phone. So um, I only spoke of the states to be polite since I'm your guest, but, <laughs> but um, and, and we're working together, right? Yeah. Um, so one thing that has been very important is and the Army does this. I do this in my class at Columbia University is to bond at the level of the spiritual heart. 
you know, we have 40 years ago in an attempt to be inclusive, we threw all religion and spiritually out of daily life. So people don't speak in the public square, the boardroom, the football team, the classroom, or anywhere, their spiritual core. And yet that is the deepest seat of who we are. And when we threw religion out of the public square, we became spiritually non-conversant. And we lost the beautiful embrace of pluralism, where you tell me about Christmas and I tell you about Hanukkah, and someone says, my child was born and she just blows my mind. Now I know there's God, right? That discussion is the discussion. It's the discussion of our universal spiritual heart. So on a team or in an army squad or amongst any group of young people, we can know each other at the level of the spiritual heart. And it allows us in our own voice to use our own words. Maybe it pulls forward a tradition from our family. Maybe it's in the language of life. But we do this. Um, we do this. And it sounds like this. You know, I want to tell you the most important moment in my life. So this beautiful young woman, beautiful, beautiful young woman, she said, when I came of age, puberty, my grandma, she tattooed me and it linked me to my mother, my mother's mother, all the women through time. And the next young adult, 24, sitting next to her, says, I got that. Me, I used to come home, and my grandma was the only one home, and she'd listen to me. She'd tell me about what had happened, and I'd share my day, and she taught me to pray. And now when I think of God, it's kind of God and my grandma all rolled up into one. And then the next 22-year-old says, yeah, I got that, because my grandma, she's passed. But I know she loved me and she walks with me. And when my back's against the wall, I can hear my grandma in my mind's eye. And the last person says, you know, I've never really related to my family's faith tradition, but I know energy can never be destroyed. So yeah, that's your grandma. Okay, first person voice and everyone is leaning in and deeply knit together and they know that everything that really matters in life is right there in the middle of the circle. That is a form of brotherhood and sisterhood. That, that team, that army squad, they'll go to the mat for each other. Why? Because that bond is so true. It is a spiritual bond. They're connected by the spiritual heart. That discussion can follow, you know, the day we had a great day out there on the field and the day that we didn't come together out there on the field. Okay, today was rough. I mean, it really fell apart out there. Let's go around. What does your spiritual heart say? And that's a real discussion where instead of being angry or blaming each other or feeling, you know, didn't do good enough, there's a real depth of exploration, discovery, connection, and love. It is a different bond. And we walk away feeling closer and a better team, of course. You know, Phil Jackson used to have his, the Chicago Bulls, have his team meditate before. Yeah. And, and they knew where each other were. They felt each other in this shared field I call it a consciousness field. It's love and information. They were in the field. They could pass the ball without looking. Yeah, I have to tell you that my father was a soccer coach in the UK. And this was, this was way before Phil Jackson. And he'd get the, uh, the whole team uh, meditating as a group in the same way. And when I was a child, I would be there with him. And it was terrible for me. It was like really difficult because like, it was just so awkward. Um, but, and I hear a lot of those players from all those years ago still speak about that now, you wow. know, that connection that he cultivated through that. So now what do you make of that? I mean, it sounds like it was one of the most important parts of their entire journey. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, I think that there's a natural hunger. We know this through twin studies. When we look at science, that as people go through late 
adolescence and early adulthood, there's a natural hunger. There's an increase in the inborn. It sort of surges like a biological clock. What is my purpose here? You know, what is my purpose? Not little p, like what team will I be on, but what is my purpose as a man or a woman on earth? You know, as a soul who's going to walk these decades, God willing. So that's a very profound, and really it's the foundation of the rest of our lives. And we can't get around that. We're hardwired for that. And for every question that the head is pounding and asking, what do I do with my precious life? The heart is saying, how can I connect? How can I feel love? How can I feel that buoyance? And the way in is to connect with one another in a spiritually loving way and try in a way that feels good and authentic to connect to the deepest spirit in and through life, who I call God, the higher power. It can be an old rusty prayer that somehow this time, you know, it's not, oh, you know, my grandma believed that out of blind faith. Well, you be curious and try it. That's a beautiful gift that your grandma gave you. Um, how does my heart feel when I talk to God? How does my heart feel? You're using the many forms of human knowing that are ours, that inside us we are all intuitives and mystics as much as we are logicians and empiricists. We've got to use all of our deep forms of human knowing. When people do, they're much more creative. They come up with a play on the field they didn't even know was possible. And when we look at them in the MRI, they have a very interconnected, high-powered brain because they draw on different ways of knowing and perceiving. So interesting. And Danny's um, in the world of sport, and I've had a business for 26 years. And about four years ago, the business was doing really well financially, but spiritually, um, we'd lost our way. And we'd brought a number of people into the business who had a lot of experience in different areas and they'd come, but they, they didn't necessarily share the values that were important to me, but we hadn't stated. And an incredible um, guy that I came across had done a lot of work in this area and we looked at our values and our purpose as individuals in a business and set a, we actually studied lots of different ways of living from sports teams and different cultures. And we, we built our values around um, much of the All Blacks um, purpose and values, the New Zealand um, rugby team. And what I realized at that point is that as a business, it's not just about the piece of work that we've got on our desk that we do, the thing that we sell or, or create. It's about how we use our resource as people within a business to put more in than we take out. And so, so for me, as a leader, I want to help people who come through the business for a period of time help to find their purpose. And I think if we can kind of tap into that commercially as businesses, you're going to buy so much loyalty or help change people's lives in that period of time that they're with you rather than, as you say, being driven by the achievement and the next goal and the next, you know, the next target that's won. So I think that's as important for business leaders to make sure that the people who are working with you have the opportunity to try and find what's important to them. You know, the employee in your organization is very, very blessed. This person can follow their deep, authentic path and at the same time be 10 times more, 100 times more energized to support and serve the organization. You know, it's, it's one story, as you say. It's not two. It's not that on the left hand is pragmatism and on the right hand is spiritual values. The very same decision 
which is based in deep spiritual values, will in the end proliferate, will enliven, will exponentiate into a much more profitable company. It's just an axiom that what is true is also inherently full of value and will realize itself through all forms of value. I'm coming to you right now from Columbia Business School. I spoke today for the executive MBA. And what I said to them is what you're already doing, Lisa, which is business leaders, athletes, you are literally in your walk each day creating the values of our society in your choices and how you walk by others, by the side of fellow human beings, how you treat those under you how you treat those who admire you, you are creating the lived values. And when you honor your leadership as really a just spiritual walk, you are helping our society through this tunnel to our next stage, the mantle that we need to reach and as a global culture. Dr. Miller, that makes me think about the, the idea of like the spiritual life and the and the business life being separate and it makes me think about so the idea of enlightenment you know when I was when I was a young boy it kind of I was spellbound by enlightenment and I, I read all about the Buddha and wanted this Nirvana and yet since that point I've been disappointed in certain people who've reached these spiritual states and haven't acted in a in a humane and and, and way that I imagined somebody uh, who was enlightened would would act. So how do you reconcile those two? Beautiful. So Danny, your story is a story that I hear for many people, which is at some point in their path, they met a torchbearer. And the torchbearer was holding a fire that was true and it was warm and it was bright, that I call spirit or the truth, godliness. The torch was shining bright, but the torchbearer, being only human, was foibled. And the torchbearer could have been a little bit foibled or they could have been a great deal foibled. Part of the journey, I think, in our, particularly as young adults, is learning to look right up to the torch and the torchbearer is a human being. Can we learn from his or her walk, how they walked in the light and how they didn't? You know, can we know them only as human trying to carry the torch, you know, riddled as humans by moments of narcissism or lostness or vanity or ego? But, you know, the torch is still bright and true. So that is our own, each and every one of us, opportunity and really perhaps in the ultimate sense, responsibility to take the spiritual path, use our own deep inner wisdom, our own heart to feel the presence of what's true, and then live out those values so that we can be, you know, walking the walk and talking the walk. You know, not teaching by lecturing and waving the finger, but by living in our walk and in our talk, the, the spiritual path. And you know, you both do it, and you both do it in a way that is enlivening for the, all of society. This is our human possibility. I actually think it's our deep nature. The spiritual core is the hub of our whole nature. Um, and maybe this opportunity is to get back right now into who we really are. Dr. Miller, I've heard you talk about the fact that much of modern society is, quote, addicted to the poison. And the fact that we are motivated by stuff and acquiring things and and that takes us away from the potential that we have as human beings 
can we get beyond that? I mean, can we get rid of those influences? Can we find a more spiritual way of life as so there are, there are more people who follow that path than the people who are addicted to that immediate gratification. I think that right now we're at a turning point because a world of only having and getting, you know, are you bigger than me? Are you better than me? Do you have more money than me? And so our relationship is transactional, right? And it's really capitalism is a moral theory. I'm all for capitalism as an economic theory, but it's not a relational theory. <laughs> We're not intended to be commodities for each other. And yet, you know, a public square silent on spiritual voice, unbalanced without spiritual voice, has become capitalism as a relational theory, right? That you know, we're all treated. I'm at a dinner party. It's unbearable. What do you do? What does your husband do? Where do you live? You know, to tink, to tink, to tink. And I want to know, you know, what was the most beautiful day of your life? That I want to know. I want to know how has who I call God's spirit, this force bigger than us, been present in your life. And I think we're ready for that type of relationship because just as an individual in his or her walk may hit bottom, really, you know, say I'm an addict and I've hit bottom, right? I was married and now my spouse hates me. I lost my job. I'm stayed at the party too late and I'm frankly embarrassed. Right now at this bottom, I'm ready to hand it over. I'm ready to hand it over to something bigger than myself, my higher power, and I know I can't do it alone. That is a profound spiritual doorway that we walk as individuals through the tunnel of addiction. Two-thirds of people in AA recover through spiritual awakening, through awakening to a presence of relationship with God or the higher power, and in sponsorship and community, relational spirituality with one another. AA is a foundationally spiritual journey. And AA awakens our naturally spiritual brain. The two dimensions that science says are important, AA wakes them up. Well, can't we help each other by doing that before we have to struggle through AA? And now as a collective post-industrial global culture bottoming out, can we help each other hand it over? Can we be like a massive spiritually inspired AA where towards one another, we do sponsor each other. We show up. Dr. Miller, you've led me into a question that I need to ask. What was the most beautiful day in your life? Oh, thank you. Thank you. So there's a tie for first place. Three days I, <laughs> three days I met my children. You know, I, I share in the awakened brain that my husband and I had struggled with infertility a really long time, and it was profoundly depressing. I mean, you know, we went to every top fertility doctor and I was, as a scientist, a, you know, very focused researcher. I went to the doctors with the highest rates of conceptions and still nothing was happening. Um, and in our path, you know, every failed in vitro was like a funeral. It was hideous. I mean, my husband was lying on the floor and my friends stopped inviting me to the baby showers because I looked so sad, you know, and it was really only when we bottomed out in the sense that we couldn't, we realized we could not control the only thing we wanted, which was to conceive a child and to become parents. And once we headed, that was the trailhead of a spiritual journey. And once we moved out of this latent view, I mean, it was so in the air and water of our lives, we didn't even see it, of radical control. You know, I got the degree and then the job I wanted and he got in there and there was a house and radical control but oh 
the one thing we want, which is, of course, life, is well beyond our grasp. Then we headed on a spiritual path that was much more of a discussion with life. Right? We shifted our conversation to not what do I want and how am I going to get pregnant, how am I going to get pregnant, to what is life showing us now. And at the end of that trail was a family, not what we had wanted, far better than what we had wanted. We have an expression in our family, which is, um, what's for you won't pass you. And it's so easy to feel that you, as you say, to, you want to control things. You know, maybe our parents have rewarded us with love around achieving certain grades in our studies or, you know, how fast we can run. But I've found in probably the last 10 years or so, in actual fact, because I've been working with Danny, I've been much more relaxed about which door I go through with faith that the door I'm going through, that door is intended for me at this point in my life. And it is liberating. I mean, you say enlightenment can come often on the back of trauma or deep adversity in your life. I think that's probably in that time it is true for me. But it's a beautiful liberation and freedom that you don't feel that you're responsible for the path that you go down. It's, it's there for you to follow. It beckons you and you walk with it. It does beckon you. May I share another practice? Lisa and Danny mm -hmm. sharing something so core to the spiritual path. And may I offer a practice? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to invite you to, again, close your eyes and breathe out your inner space, your inner chamber. I invite you to think of a time where you wanted something so badly and you went for it 100%. You gave it the effort. You planned. You strategized. You got everything tactically set up with the research. It made, took, to, took a lot of time. You had A plus B plus C all together, and you got that red door. That red door was yours. You went right up to it. You reached for that red door that you'd planned for, grabbed the handle, but it was stuck. And you couldn't actually believe it was stuck because you had done A, so Bert, absolutely beautifully. You'd researched B and C. It was in place, 99% certainty, and you reach for that red door, and it's truly stuck. And at first, it's shocking. You can't even believe it. It does not compute. And then you maybe get angry. You kick the door, and then in time, yield to depression. But only because that red door was stuck you had no choice. You turned 30 degrees, maybe 60 degrees, maybe 180. You made a hairpin turn because you saw a bright, radiant, open yellow door. You might have said that yellow doors didn't exist. You'd never even seen yellow doors. But this bright beckoning yellow door had on the other side a job that was more right for you had on the other side a partner that made you feel alive like you'd never felt before. Maybe a mentor, friends, you lived somewhere. It was not what you wanted. It was better than what you had wanted. And as you stand back and look at that shut red door, the hairpin turn, the wide open yellow door, was there someone there on the hairpin turn who helped you along, who told you a few things, maybe informed you, guided you, told you a story from their own life. It could have been someone you met for two minutes on the tube or at the coffee shop. 
or it could have been a grandparent, a dear friend that told you a story they'd never told you before. A trail angel. And as you step back and look at the shut red door, the hairpin turn, the trail angel, and the wide open yellow door that is so important to who you are and where you are today in your journey. Way back, how really is life built? Sure that we need to strategize and plan, but how are the most important parts of our lives brought forward? Is it through a dialogue with life? Is it life revealing the journey? So rather than being strictly makers of our path, are we discoverers on a quest? And as you finally step way, way back, and you see the stuck red door, the hairpin turn, the trail angel, the wide open yellow door, and see life in a dynamic conversation, where is your higher power? Where is God, spirit? whatever your word is. And perhaps have you been on a spiritual journey all along? This is your precious, sacred, spiritual road of life. And I invite you in your own turn to look at two more hairpin turns and fill out your road of life. And when you're ready, I invite you back. That makes me feel that it's just all going to be okay. <laughs> We're talking about the lobster brain in terms of this need for people to feel potentially that they're winning at life. And in actual fact, as Danny mentioned earlier, the ones that we see as having won, they've won in the traditional sense that the accumulation of wealth and status in life as Danny said earlier, they realize that's not what winning is. And I suppose what we're all looking for is the enlightenment and finding our purpose in life. And um, that's just made me realize that you can't search for your purpose. The purpose will find you. and It'll tap you on the shoulder. That's beautiful. And, and I, in my own journey, and actually in the portrait of science, we see that when we're on a spiritual journey, we really we realize our path. We marshal our achieving awareness towards what our awakened values and goals may be. That the heart finds true direction, true purpose in an ultimate sense. And then the head, the valuable head, implements. The heart guides the head is in service. And when we get that mixed up, when the head guides and the heart is in service, that's human error. But we all have an abundant heart. Every one of us has a spiritual heart. It is an organ of perception, as has been known through time. And the heart says what's true. It says what direction we might go. 
And, you know, we were given a head to implement to do good work, heart, head, and then hand. And just to finish up, I suppose, what advice would you have for fairly fast impact for somebody who is feeling alone and then isolated? I mean, would you have any advice to them now or somebody who's gone through a really difficult period and feels that there's no way out, that that period is defined who they have to be for the rest of their lives? Is there a quick fix in any way just to start to make that difference? So science is very clear on this, that we are built, that in suffering, we are at the trailhead. It is a doorway to a deepening of spiritual life and opening of the heart. If we say yes, you know, whether through prayer, meditation, going out and doing something for someone else, service, if we take our moments of suffering and say, life, what are you asking of me now? How can I be more loving? How can I connect? What can I do for someone? This is actually a moment of opportunity. It is not lost time. It is not downtime. And it is only definitive as it is the welcome mat to a much more connected, loving spiritual life. Once we make that passage, we are built in a way where life looks much more full of radiance and surprise and joy. On the other side of our own suffering, deepening and awakening, we can walk with others. And so for that person who's alone, on the other side of your journey to a deeper spiritual connection, you will be a living, walking teacher in who you are, your deep way of being. You know, I think we can live this out for one another by showing up and giving voice to our own spiritual struggles. Our, you know, I share in the awakened brain when I'm 19 and I'm sitting in the basement of my college dorm room thinking, oh my gosh, my whole life I'd felt this great love, this presence, and I feel empty and dead. You know, and I looked terrible and I was ripping my terrible skin. It was a nightmare. But it was through that journey that I've lived my whole life on, on a spiritual road. It was essential. That was a pretty stuck red door. And it opened to a yellow door. I'd say if there's three things we can do for one another, we can tell our own stories, honest and true, in the first person, our own spiritual path. Tell our stories. Two, we can give this a language that includes everyone. I mean, you're certainly welcome, each and every one of us, in the first person to use your own spiritual voice within your faith tradition, outside of faith tradition. But there's also a language we can share, a language of life. You know, a team, a team of football players can say, okay, Let's build our field of love. You know, I love you, and I will be there for you even if you miss what could have been the winning goal. Let's build our brotherhood, sisterhood, our field of love. Know that they're instantiating that, building that. And so tell our stories. Speak to one another in a loving, inclusive language of spirituality. And then walk the walk as we're talking the walk. Show up for one another. You know, I, you're right. You know, just the other day I had was running a huge conference. There were 500 people here. And a young woman came to me in tears that her mother had died. And I left the 500 people. And this time, you know, I've done it right. I've done it wrong. This time it was done right. I sat outside with her for 20 minutes. That was a conference that was about spirituality and love. If I had ignored her, the 500 people who'd come would have gotten something that was a little bit more hollow, maybe even fake. As we talk the walk, walk the walk. I think you've done a, an amazing example for us all. You're, you're a great role model in terms of exactly what you're speaking about. And it's been 
such a pleasure to be in your presence. And I've got no doubt that all of our listeners are going to take so much away from what you've said today. And, and I can only just express my deep gratitude for who you are and, and sharing this time with us today. Danny and Lisa, I am so grateful, appreciative, thrilled that you are a voice of renewing global civil society to be based on love, to be based on opportunity, to be based on spirit. Samila, thank you so much. I'm going out to spread a field of love. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Straight after we recorded the podcast, when Danny came out of the other room and we looked at each other and like, wow, that was actually an incredible conversation. I think the thing that really resonated with us both was the red door, green door. And I know through the work I've done with you, Danny, you know, we started that seven years ago at a certain point in my life, I was trying to go through a big red door. I know you helped me to turn around and, and see that yellow door, which is right next to the red one, but I'd just not seen it. So it's so powerful because you see in business or maybe in, as you do in, in sports, so many people just trying to get through that red door, whatever it takes, and it's not for us. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we did that exercise, my red door just came into my mind straight away. And what happened to me when I was a kid, I was just desperate to be a footballer. And I hit this red door where I knew it wasn't going to happen. And I spent a whole day in bed just crying and crying and crying. And at that point, it felt hopeless. I felt like, you know, my life was worthless and I couldn't see that yellow door. But just having the the hindsight to look back on that red door now and realizing that all of the doors that have opened from that point. And as Dr. Miller mentions, all of the people that came in and helped me in certain points, it just kind of makes you more open hearted and you know there's there's a vulnerability that you have to do to access that part of yourself but if you don't then there's part of you that's not alive and not seen and it's really important that people connect with that part and I'm sure they will when the time is right. One of the great questions that will always stay with me is what does life need from me right now? You know I think quite often we can go through life thinking what can I take from life what what do I need from life but just to be able to sit down quietly and ask the question what does life need from me right now is a powerful shift in paradigms and all of our listeners will benefit if they can do that completely and she said when you get that tap on the shoulder then you know that's your time and at the moment, we know so many people are suffering from isolation or feeling they're not connected. And the best way to feel connected is to give. And that creates connections. And that's so powerful. Yeah, and she's even researched that as well. You know, if you want to protect your brain from all of these the illnesses, the mental illnesses that we are experiencing massively across the globe at the moment, give and help other people. It's the, it's the greatest thing you can do. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Lobster Brain. Lobster Brain will be back on the 29th of December with David Moyes, the current West Ham manager who's had an illustrious career in Premier League football. I think the listener will really enjoy hearing a side of David Moyes that they will have never heard before. You know, he opened up to us in ways that it just showed the side of managing that's really difficult, it's really tough and it often doesn't get spoken about. 
And now also how high on the agenda the issue of mental health is. There seems to be the one area, the one role that there is no protection for is the is the football manager, Premier League football yeah. manager, because their whole future is allowed to be debated and discussed and polled on like some kind of Victorian freak show and that person's just got to be able to deal with them being told they should lose the job every week. I mean, it's actually shocking when you think about it like that. Yeah. In the meantime, please remember to rate, review and follow this podcast. It means more people will find us and the next episode will drop into your feed as soon as it's ready.